the episode you are about to hear was created prior to our rebranding to Foul Play. If you have any information on any of our cases, you can visit us at itsfoulplay.com. To bring in the new year, Gemma and I wanted to sit down with two very important people. Joining us is the Keeper's Director, Ryan White, and Gene Wayner, who many will remember as the brave survivor who came forward in the 90s and was known as Jane Doe. These are two of our heroes. I want everyone to meet our two special guests whose name you will already recognize, Gene and Ryan. But the first question I wanted to ask to you, Ryan, is what was a highlight and a low light of this past year since the Keepers came out? Well, it's a tough question to answer, but I think the two ladies on the phone line with us and all the other wonderful people that I got to meet while making it, I think made the Keepers for three years, I believe, maybe even a little bit more. And to establish, uh, you know, to come in completely unknowing of people like Gene and Gemma and to have left the process feeling so close with them and that we all accomplished something together that I don't think any of us ever expected to have the impact and the success as far as the amount of people that watched it. Um, I don't think any of us including myself, ever conceived that that was a possibility at the beginning. So the highlight to me is definitely the relationship that uh, we all formed in making the series over so many years and the um, the impact that the series had, which we can talk about a little bit later. The, the low light, I mean, it's hard for me not to forget the day that the Keepers came out and being totally surprised and appalled by the way the Archdiocese of Baltimore came out against the Keepers. I just remember that day knowing that it was going up on Netflix and starting to feel the impact of people out there in the world, and I mean all over the world, watching it and the way they were reacting to it compassionately and emotionally. And then to contrast that with the way the Archdiocese of Baltimore came out with this aggressive, antagonistic Twitter campaign that you can go back and find if you want, where they created memes about Joseph Maskell's DNA test, and they retweeted things about how our documentary was a fictional film, and 
it's still uh, just appalling to me that, that Sean Kane still has a job. Uh, you know, he was leading their PR effort. And it, it'd be one thing if that were a corporation, you know, a true corporation that was trying to battle some sort of theories that might be telling some truth of them. It's just a joke to me that a supposed church came out with that PR effort. And I still think it's a testament to that there's no management at the Archdiocese of Baltimore, or there's no one in a position of power or responsibility that truly cares that the people like Sean Kane, who waged that PR effort against the keepers, and they had to apologize for it later. They did their own damage control, not trying to repair all of that. But the fact that they're all still working there is pretty appalling and shocking to me. And that continues to be the low light to me. Those people are still in charge. Yeah, I mean, I think it's yeah. just a sad state of affairs that nobody, you know, there's bosses. There's, there's just, this could go up to the Vatican and nobody stepped in and said, this is a horrific response to a series about people sharing their painful past. We need to show that we are, that we're not accepting the way that the PR effort was organized. And they never did that. I don't know how much you know about how I came involved with this podcast and doing Sister Kathy's series. But when I first started the podcast about three years ago, uh, there was another unsolved case of a uh, young Catholic girl in Cleveland. And that was the very first podcast episode that I did. Uh, there was a listener who was familiar with Sister Kathy's case, and that's how I got connected over to it. And it wasn't until I arranged our very first interview with Teresa that I learned about Father Maskell and, and that entire situation. For you, talking about the highlight and low light, when you were producing this series, was there a certain point where you just kind of felt maybe overwhelmed by the things that you were hearing? Because I know from my perspective, from I mean, I'm just a podcaster behind a mic, but I was really shocked. That was something so shocking. So, of course, you're meeting everyone in person, and I don't have that opportunity to do that. So I just wanted to know from your perspective how you felt about that. I think it's easy to talk about in hindsight um, that, you know, I think I think people see the keepers and they see a big Netflix series um, that garnered a ton of press and attention. And the reality is that the keepers was very small. You know, it began with me and my best friend since we were little kids, who's my producing partner, going to Baltimore and meeting Gene and Gemma. We're actually the first two people that we met. And then continuing to do that for three years after we were compelled by by the story and, and felt like we had to unearth this truth. So it was a very small operation. And, you know, my, my best friend is Jess Hargrave, the producer. And it, it was just the two of us, you know, and eventually we brought in our, our amazing director of photography, John Benham. So, you know, and I think Jess and I would both agree at this point that we probably didn't foresee and take enough precaution for our own <laughs> mental health during making the keepers because we were so tunneled vision in making sure we documented it and that we you know that we got all of the shooting done and that we were taking care of the emotional health of the people that we were filming with as best as we could which was totally a learning experience and none of that was apparent i think none of it was apparent the way the content had impacted us until the series came out. So, like I was saying, the low light was the archdiocese 
response the day that it came out. And that was, that was really appalling and devastating in a way that I knew that they were continuing to harm these people who were in my series that would be looking to them for some sort of response. But for me and Jess, and, and I know, you know, Gene was off social media at the time, but I know for people like Gemma and Abby, that was also starting to field the responses of thousands of people out there in the world who had experienced some version of something similar. And that's when I think Jess and I realized that we were in way over our heads, that we might have been too tunnel visioned while we were making it and too invested in making sure the keepers got to the finish line and didn't prepare enough for what I describe as like ripping the Band-Aid off of the entire world. Now, I don't think that's a bad thing in the end. I think the, the impact of the keepers proved that. But like being there on the that first weekend when the series came out, I was just, you know, I, I couldn't leave the house because it was just listening to uh, story after story, whether that was, you know, on my email or in my Facebook or on Twitter, of people having gone through something similar, which was just really, really a sad experience. Yeah. Thank you for answering that. I appreciate it. Gene, how about you? No problem. Since The Keepers was released, can you think of what have been some of the highlights for you in the last 18 months and maybe some of the lowlights or, or uh, sure. yeah. things that you've had to deal with? Yeah, the, um, I think the highlights for me, if I thought of anything in particular, was the mere fact that this horrible truth that um, I felt silenced with and terrified to really say above a whisper um, that it had it had blown open the ability for people in general to speak spontaneously about um, two extremely horrific crimes, and one is uh, clergy sexual abuse, and the other is unsolved murder of Kathy Sesnick. Personally, the highlight for me was that it did what I never thought could ever happen, and yet what I had always felt needed to happen and would try periodically to write in order to make it happen, but it couldn't happen until all the parts of the puzzle were put together in one smooth move so that people understood the depth and the breadth to a certain degree of what was what. So the highlight for me was just feeling how wow, yeah, this did, this did, and I didn't, it, it's not even a conscious thought, it's just heartfelt, especially when there was such spontaneous uh, movement of conversation, and I was off the grid, so that mm -hmm. spontaneity was happening no matter where you were, no matter how you showed up. I think the low light for me would be also that same statement. I'm a survivor that has stayed very uh, off the grid. I mean, so I got literally off the grid after this came out, but I have purposely not been in the public eye. I have not gotten an education. I have not gotten a profession that provides me with a 401k or a pension, or I have not done the speaking, even with the practice that I have of reflexology and Reiki and life coaching. That's really kind of a, a, it's a disguise. I've always known that I could do so much more, but because these people put their hands in my life, I haven't. 
So I've made the most of what I have. So the low for me would be that I did get thrown into the public eye as a survivor that you wouldn't know it when you see me, but it was really, truly three people in a room or then John, you know, and even the day John came, they asked me very nicely, are you okay if, you know, <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, we'll see, you know, and I, I was, because this is, this is what I think is important is that when you know that you need to do it because your heart calls you to it, it's the right thing to do, that you'll find a way. And in finding a way, you're not really looking ahead and saying, oh, shit, you know, I'm going to end up being, I'm going to end up being, you know, in the public eye. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. We had no idea where this was going. It, it was, it was, we were into it pretty far, Ryan, you can speak to that before we even knew. I mean, there was never a Netflix to start. There was just these two people who showed up. Mm-hmm. And um, I was hoping that these very hard things that I was talking about weren't just going to be shown on Ryan's basement wall, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it wasn't just this, you thanks, know. Thanks yeah. for the faith in my career. <laughs> you even have a basement, hon? I don't even have a basement. He doesn't okay. even thanks have for, a basement. Yeah. <laughs> that that was the low light. The low light was the impact. The impact, see, I was the, I was the advocate and the survivor. I, that is the, the dual edge of severing from myself. So I'm the advocate who's speaking out. At the same time, I'm the survivor who is shocked and, and thrown back by what is, is still the victim. So I think it took me a full year I would say, uh, I'm, you know, to get my, my feet back under me and to somehow allow for that recognition to not feel as if now I have let down all my guards and people can just come in and do whatever they want in my space. So it was, it's funny. The one thing is what I wanted, and the other thing is what I had no idea I was going to really struggle with. I have to hand it to you, Jean, because I know you well enough now to know how resourceful you've been about mm-hmm. creating that safety net for yourself. One example that I think I can share is that you always make sure if somebody has pictures to show you that mm-hmm. we're not just going to send you a picture, that you need to know it's coming and you need it in an envelope. And I think you have done a wonderful job in taking care of yourself because you know yourself so well. And so you're willing to speak like you are right now, but you always set up your boundaries, which I appreciate that as your friend and as the person that's asking you the questions now. But I think you've done a great job with that this year. After a couple of the things, I've done a number of things. They're all well thought out. I'm very cautious. Brian can tell you that. I, I tend to take someone with me. I not tend to. I take someone with me. Let's mm-hmm. just be honest. They have my back. I uh, also like to know the, what the space I'm going to be in looks like. I um, don't want to be surprised by questions. So a lot of times I'll have them vet it or there has to be a moderator who is going to make sure that no question is being asked that will trigger me or throw me into a tailspin because I didn't Remember everything when I started to remember. I am still remembering. And so I can be triggered by something that I don't even know is happening until later. 
-hmm. So I do feel that when I had, I usually will do something like John, I asked him if I have to leave when we did the panel, a panel over at TCBC, will you go with me? Mm -hmm. And he said, yes, I will. So uh, people don't understand when I say that I, I, you have to know yourself enough to say, I'm going to speak of these very vulnerable things. These, I'm going to open this place that I know I was severely hurt because of the innocent openness that was the, at that time. Um, you're opening back up there. So to create that space. Don't be afraid to spend two weeks beforehand. If you're feeling, if any of your listeners are feeling like, I have something I want to say and I know that I, but I can't, I can't do it like she does it, or I don't have that, or I don't, I'm not that together. That I'm not that together. I spend two weeks, like you just said, I have a system that this last year and a half has made me get in place. So I have a safety net. And anyone who is listening who feels I have something I know that I need to do, but I know I can't do it because I'm too create the space, be embarrassed, say, send me pictures. I need to know what it is that they're going to be asking me. I want to know, are you going to have a problem if I bring someone with me? Will that be a problem if it costs you? You know, I also say, and what if at the very end I decide I'm not going to do this? Will you be okay with that? Because you have to respect the victim, that survivor, that flash of all of it that you are when you start to do these things, which I think the Keeper opened up. The Keepers has opened up the ability for people to use their voices and mm -hmm. to speak their truth. And some of us are still really still suffering from the wound of the abuse. And we can do it, but it, it just might take a little extra that you, know, that you need to do. And I think the people that read about you or read on the Keeper's official group page, they need to understand what you're both saying because they don't see it from your perspective if it hasn't happened to them or if they mm -hmm. haven't been taught. I've, I've been taught by survivors what is right and what isn't right and how to handle a situation. So I think there's a lot of education that goes into it, but a whole lot of just listening to what your perspective is and what you need not what our goal is. Right. Yeah. So. Gina, I wanted to thank you for saying that because I feel like our listeners and other survivors of, of anything, I feel like they're going to benefit from hearing you say that, knowing that they should, if they need to create their own system, be okay with creating that. This question is for you, Ryan. For you, what was the most intense situation during the filming? Uh, man. Um... Well, I mean, some some of those moments ended up in the series. There's one moment, you know, where Jean breaks down after reading her memories that she had read to the Archdiocese in the 90s, um, mm. trying to tell them that Father Maskell was an abuser and that, you know, just warn them that there was an abuser in their ranks. And we, we all know now how that turned out. But when she was reading that memory and she broke down was um, an incredibly emotional moment. And that's, you know, not the only time um, that we saw emotion from Jean, but it definitely was one of the first times that we that we felt that, you know, and that's an interesting, you know, this is all, what, a year and a half mm -hmm. since the Keepers came out, and then many years 
since those moments actually happened because Gene might remember better than me, but that probably ha that moment probably happened in the first six months of filming. Yeah, my but mom. Those are always yeah, your mom was there. She was mm -hmm. she was still in a room. She was mm -hmm. still alive. You know, those are always tricky situations as a filmmaker, and I've dealt with this on all of my projects, series, films. You know, even the most the most light affair and the heaviest affair, and that would obviously be the keepers, is when you when you have those types of moments where someone is so vulnerable, so emotional, and, and wearing their heart on their sleeve, do you use that moment? That was a conversation that Gene and I had, and I can't remember exactly, but it might be the only time during the making of The Keepers that I actually took a scene. I didn't show it to her, but I, but I detailed it to her and said, I might include this in the series. How do you feel about that? And that was a back and forth conversation of us. And I think, Gene, you're probably the best person um, that's the most, uh, you know, that was the most emotional moment for me in filming, but you're probably the best person in to, to weigh in on, on why we included that in the end. Yeah, I, I, that one, that was, again, you know, I, I'm, I, I always, I'm very visual, so I'm visualizing your audience. When you think about the idea of what Brian did, I, you know, as a, I mean, I'm telling you, I had the secret type. And I wasn't talking to anyone. So this particular time when I broke down was probably the first time John was filming. It was very important to me that he tell me how he felt because he saw me. You know, this is what I was telling them. It's like I opened up boxes and I was pulling things out of boxes and putting them on the table. And the more I did it, the more I couldn't fit them back in the boxes, you mm -hmm. know, so... This particular time, I kept also trying to stay separate from Ryan, like he's just the director, he's just getting what he wants, he's going to be gone before you know it. You know, I had to be like tough, figure out what, what you get from this. Well, you came in and he said, you know, somewhere down the line, I would like to use this. And he spelled it out for me what it was. And my first response to him was, why? just to get more viewers. And um, I mean, really, I, get, I took him through the ringer a number of times and he looked at me square and said, no, he said, you really do come off very in control. And I think it would be really helpful if people saw that there is, that doesn't always happen, that that is, you know, as I say, it's part of my coping mechanisms. So he explained himself as a director for him to take the time to explain why he would like to do this, even to ask. I was later is when it sinks in. I was shocked. So, yes, I felt like each time he did something like that, Ryan, you know this. Every time you did something like that, I felt I, the trust in you deepened. And for the work that we were doing and then all of the other survivors you were listening to, talking to, you know, it, uh, enjoying. We laughed as much as we, we would cry like that. I just think that you, you allowed us to be a part of what you were doing instead of you coming in and just filming us. And it's an interesting point because you did ask me, was it for the ratings or was it to get more viewers? And... You know, that's a totally understandable question. And the interesting part, I think, about this series and where I really have to give credit to Netflix as our partner 
is that that actually is the type of situation, that is the type of scene and content that distributors would normally be afraid of. What's popular is true crime and the whodunit mm-hmm. and, you know, murder mystery. And frankly, that's probably what Netflix thought they were signing up for. Um, that's probably what I thought I was signing up for. You know, most people's entry point to the story is the murder of Sister Kathy. And in filming it, I was realizing very early on and definitely throughout the three years, over and over and again, that this had to be a deeper story of systemic abuse, of child sex abuse, and couldn't just be the whodunit. And, you know, I think those types of scenes of, like, Jean breaking down after having read a memory of horrific child sex abuse is actually a very dangerous scene to show in a documentary because it could very easily lose viewers of people saying, this is not what I signed up for. Um, and I always like to give Netflix credit that not once when they, when I showed them cuts of the film and they were, you know, weighing in all for the final year as I was editing, did they ever push us uh, or even question us of going more into the true crime aisle and steering away from the child sex abuse or the, you know, the hierarchical problems uh, that led to all of this? And so I always like to mention that. Because I think people often think, like, the distributors after ratings as well. And I think that those are the types of moments that prove um, that they are collaborators in, in telling the truth. Brian, you wouldn't believe how many people think that Netflix made the movie. And so every single day somebody says, well, is Netflix going to make another season? <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> Netflix didn't make the movie. I learned so much about the process. You know how I always was bugging you about the process of making this thing. But it comes up every day. Well, is Netflix going to make another movie? So anyway, I I get what you're saying. Um, But I want to ask you, Ryan, and then Eugene, is there something, is there an interview that you wish you could have done? Or is there something in retrospect that you wish you had done differently that you feel comfortable sharing? Uh, Well, the obvious answer to the interview is that nobody, not one figure from the Archdiocese of Baltimore, any priests, any officials participated in the documentary, you know, and even the other day, you know, I'm not on Facebook much and I don't, I don't actually really um, watch the Facebook page that much. But even the other day, Abby drew my attention, or maybe it was Donna drew my attention to, um, you know, Sean Kane on the Archdiocese of Baltimore's. Facebook page still complaining that we only asked them six questions when it came down to it. And I think, uh, I'm sure Sean Kane will live the rest of his life complaining about that. <laughs> but what's so funny to me is that we gave them so many opportunities to participate in a documentary series. It's not a written essay. It is a documentary series where everybody is putting their face on camera. Everybody yeah. is sitting down for an interview with me. and. They refused to do that time after time and person after person, all men, I'll say, um, you know, whether it's Rick Roy, Francis Malouli, Sean Kane, all of them, or Sister Lori, all of them, nobody would sit down on camera with us. And I think, you know, unfortunately, we never got to, we never got to push that then in the series. We never got to actually get the truth out of them because all they wanted to do was prepare answers that run it through lawyers make sure that they were sending everything in a way that wouldn't set precedent. And there was no sense of transparency. And, you know, just 
just the other day, I, you know, there's, I think it was today, an article in the Sun where Sh- Sean Kane and the Archdiocese patting themselves on the back for the sense of transparency they created. And I just think, having been the filmmaker behind the keepers, I just think that's a total joke. Um, I think it's article. I think yeah. it's laughable. Yeah, so yeah. my mom sent it to me. Uh-huh. My mom sent it to me to say like, oh, look at what they're bragging about now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's really difficult for me to read that stuff because I know, you know, I come from a Catholic family from Baltimore. I know people that are still in that church, and I don't understand how people going to the Catholic church in Baltimore, yeah. or anywhere in Maryland, or anywhere uh, can read an article like that and not want to vomit. Well, we give them back. We give it back to them, Ryan. You'd be so proud of everybody who writes their opinion on the Archdiocese Facebook page, and they haven't taken <laughs> that, it down yet. I mean, we really—that's what I saw. Yeah, so that's that, that's that's one of those conversations that I was looped into. For Eugene, you're on the phone with three people who are used to interviewing other people. For you, is there anyone connected with a story that you would like to sit down and talk to? Well, there was I, I there's a couple of people that came to mind. I would love to have been a fly on the wall. See, I am in, I'm still furious. I mean, really, it, it really I I that's what I was saying to Jim at the beginning. There, it's like they had a chance. You had an opportunity. You all had this man in your hands, and you let him go. And so for me, being someone who sat so close to that point, I have no trust in anything that they're doing. I have hope, a little hope that maybe they'll do something now with what they're doing. But I sat up close and personal. I sat up close and personal when they made me think we were on the same page and that they were going to truly want to take this man out of a location that he is around tons of kids and people who could very well be hurt or up or swayed by him. So that being up close and personal for me had a different kind of impact. You know, so when I think of the judge, I think he said very clearly, you two ladies look like you're fine. I can still pull it out of my deposition if I want it to. You two look like you're fine. One, you got your family, and now you're getting your, you know, your education. Look like you've done okay. I can tell you, just uh, I wasn't even in the room because I couldn't, I couldn't go to that point. But um, when I read it, when I heard it, when I, it's a slap in the face. It was such a a ignorant statement of 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 unknowing because either you had to come in in a wheelchair and be crazy, then it would be, okay, we can tell something really terrible happened to you. Or you come in being the the warrior that you had to be in order to make anything of your life. And they say, well, you look like you're fine. I don't see why we need to even say anything really uh, is a problem here. And that guy also said, was the name Chaplin? He also said, um, but it's not that I don't believe this happened. You know, of course, they're working all with that statute of limitations, but it was a, to me, that was just a facade. That was a barrier. That was a nice little wall that was there. I would love to have been a fly on a wall when he saw all this blow up and mm-hmm. in a positive way. We asked Jean about her thoughts on Deep Throat. Deep Throat was a code name Abby and Jim had used 
for someone who had important information but requested to remain anonymous. This person states they were present at the time of the infamous cemetery dig when boxes and bags belonging to Maskell were dug up from a 10-foot by 10-foot hole. I wrote Deep Throat at one point and said, so far, it's all survivors. People who have been through this hell are speaking and are finding the courage and the ability to speak their truth. I told him, I said, I, I was threatened. I live with that threat. I, I'm afraid. I know what fear is. I live with men who were extremely responsible for their families. I know what that's like to be in the presence of men who take that responsibility seriously. I had a father who was a policeman. I understand that. I understand what that means for a, a person, especially a man of, you know, of that kind of responsibility to be in the community being a part of what's going on. But we need to say who we are. We need to be legitimized by people who know something, by them putting their name and their face out there. I, I, I'm pleased that we had some, some of that response within the keepers. I told him, I said, in my handwritten letter of you know three pages, I want you to know that the reason I know that I can be shot, I could be killed. I know that. I feel it. You know, I said, survivors, we had guns put to our heads. We get it. But, you know, they can't kill us all. So the more of us that speak up, they can't kill us all. Jean added that she felt strongly about Deep Throat identifying himself because originally in 1992, she told the Archdiocese of Baltimore that she remembered Neil Magnus taking pictures of her posing exactly like the photos Deep Throat says he saw in the box that he held at the Holy Cross Cemetery dig. Jean feels these separate instances of these photos existing corroborates each other's experience. She wondered if pictures of her might have been in that box, which would have validated her original statement. Then, suddenly, the box mysteriously went missing. I do remember that Ryan mentioned once that they don't, that he and Jess did not care to change people's voices or, or not show their faces when they're filming. And I, I know you guys accommodated him very graciously because that was his choice. But most of what we hear is that, you know, the survivors look right in a camera and talk to the world and somebody who could be really helpful has not felt the strength to do that yet. So we're hoping that still happens. Yeah. On another topic, what are you each doing now in your lives, in your careers? I mean, I'm continuing to, to make documentaries um, and work on film projects. They're, you know, like the keepers. I didn't I didn't talk about it until uh, publicly until the weekend it came out. So a few of them I can't talk about. I do have one I can talk about that um, is premiering at Sundance next month, and then we'll come out on Hulu and in movie theaters in May, which is called Ask Dr. Ruth. Um, and it's about Dr. Ruth Westheimer, the, the famous um, sex therapist um, who was all over television and radio in the 80s and 90s um, and just turned 90 years old. A very different film than The Keepers. I actually started making it at the tail end of The Keepers. And I always say it was like going 
you know, from the like the pendulum swinging on the on the scale of of healthy sexuality, um, from you know the, the the least healthy of what of what these perpetrators were doing and the keepers to getting to work with someone like Dr. Ruth, who spent her life um, trying to educate about healthy sexuality. Uh, a film I'm very excited about. It's uh, you know people know who she is. They know that she's a dynamite personality, very funny. But our story will also go deeply into her past, which um, involves uh, Holocaust. She actually is the only person from her family who did survive the Holocaust and ended up um, as an orphan when she was 10 years old till her adulthood, kind of ping-ponging around the world on her own um, and a totally self-made woman. So it totally fits in with the um, themes that seem to be intrinsic in all of my films, which are uh, strong female central characters. Um, just like Jean, just like you, Gemma. Um, I think Dr. Ruth is a continuation of my fascination in um, being a part and collaborating with those women on on, on bringing their, their stories to a documentary. That's, that's the most looming one that in, and should be out over the next few months. Well, I continue to uh, run my business, my little practice. I also have done a couple um, uh through the, if we're talking about through through the year, year and a half since, you know, um, I have done something that I don't, you know, that I've always been more, um, I'm really an introvert and I'm really very, um, you know, I've got a, a, a thing of uh, fear of public speaking. Um, so um, I've learned that that is part of what I deal with. It's not all from the abuse, you know, so... Part of it is my personality also. So that's been very free. Um, but I have done some talks. Um, I also am um, working on doing some writing. I, uh, I've been asked, I've been kind of taking some ideas of what people ask me through the year and a half. And one of the things that I've, I've heard, and this is even staying off the grid and staying off the, you know, the media, the, the social media, how did you do it? You know, how did you get through Twofold. One is, what did, what is it to, to suffer? How did you start remembering? The other question was um, very clearly, how did you do it? You know, how come you're sane? So I'm, I'm writing. Um, hopefully, it will end up a book, but it is on the body, mind, and spirit process. The book Gina's writing doesn't have a title yet, but when it's finished, we will certainly share it. She did previously publish a book called Conversations with Myself, a collection of poems, which can be found on Amazon. Do you know yet when your new book will be out? I'm just now, I have to be honest, it's because of the keepers. You know, I mean, seriously, what what this has done, and Gemma, you can attest to this, um, just because you got to know different survivors throughout this and beyond this, mm -hmm. um, what the keepers did was truly bring all of it together. There's more. There's more, obviously. But it brought so many parts together, and it frees up the survivors to do what they do best. So, Teresa, it's legal, you know. And Donna, there's a medical edge to what she does and the way that she, you know, each of us are doing. So, for me... Every time I would try to write in the last 25 years or 23 years, I couldn't because I, I want to talk about this part. 
now that the keepers is out, I have gone further in my writing than I ever did the other three or four times that I tried to write about this. So that's a very exciting thing for me. We, my brother Ed is helping me with this. We meet once a week and we are doing um, a lot of work around parts and pieces so that we then will be able to find ways to put them all together. Um, but we're starting now with just uh, kind of like puzzle pieces, like everything was before the keepers pulled them all together. Join us next week for part two of our conversation with Ryan and Jean.